0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Trustee Table. I'm Anne-Marie Balzano, Director of Leadership and Governance at NAIS, and today I'll be speaking with Dr. Robert Evans and Dr. Michael Thompson, authors of the new NAIS book, Hopes and Fears, Working with Today's Independent School Parents. Rob is a psychologist and school consultant. A former high school and preschool teacher and a former child and family therapist, he has consulted to more than 1,700 schools, including 700 NAIS schools. He served for nearly 40 years as executive director of the Human Relations Service, a nonprofit mental health agency in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Rob's interests are in leadership, helping schools manage change, improving adult relationships within schools, and crisis intervention. Michael is a clinical psychologist, author, and school consultant. He has worked in schools for 50 years, starting as a middle school teacher and later training as a counselor and psychologist now the supervising psychologist for the Belmont Hill School in Massachusetts. He has worked with more than 700 schools in the US, Asia, Africa, Europe, and Central America. In addition, he served as a longtime facilitator for the NAS Institute for New Heads and later for the Academy of International School Heads. He has also served on the board of the American Camp Association. Rob, Michael, thank you so much for taking a seat at the table today.
1: We're glad to be here.
2: Thanks for having
0: us, Anne-Marie. As I said, I, I know how busy you both are, and we're excited to have you on the show, especially since your new book just dropped last month, which is so exciting. So Michael, this first question is going to be for you. The title of the book is Hopes and Fears, Working with Independent School Parents. So what hopes and fears do parents have for their children, and what hopes and fears do school leaders and teachers have for working with parents?
2: Oh, my goodness. All parents are just a bundle of hopes and fears for their children. (laughs) They're constantly being whipsawed between their hopes and and their fears. Um, And and, and this is something Rob and I've been talking about for years, uh, uh, teachers, because um, they often want to think of the partnership between schools and parents as being easy or cozy or we're all a family. And we're just aware as psychologists that that, uh, sometimes parents have ferocious hopes and dreams, and sometimes they have ferocious fears and anxieties, which can make them quite irrational and angry. And part of our approach uh, to this book was just to be straightforward about the intensity of emotion in Independent school parents. And we we make the case right away in the introduction. It's why it's why parents choose an independent school. Their hopes are so high, and sometimes their worries are so great. But then we turn to the teachers and we say, and by the way, schools run on your hopes, your hopes to run a classroom the way you want to, to have a wonderful group of kids who are ready to learn, who, who get support from home and, and where you can really thrive as a teacher and get success and respect and be closely connected with kids. I mean, uh, independent school teachers really, really want to have a meaningful impact on the life of kids. They hope they are going to. They also have fears of the parent as a customer, of the entitled or angry parent who comes in, or the parent most uh, frighteningly, who comes in and says, you don't understand my child, you're hurting my child, you're allowing my child to be bullied. And, you know, we don't, when we have nice conversations about the parent-school partnership, we're, we're not always talking about these moments of conflict and tension. But Rob and I know that they exist, they will occur in every year, and we know that the teachers fear them. It's not nice to say that the independent school teachers occasionally fear parents, but
0: it's the absolute truth. Do you feel the same thing is in play with independent school leaders, like heads of school, assistants heads of school, deans, et cetera?
2: Well, you better get over your fears if you're gonna be an administrator (laughs) because you have to protect your teachers. And you jolly well better get over your fears if you're gonna be the head of school because you have to protect your teachers and your administrators, and you have to be the office where the buck stops. And there are parents who work their way up to the head of school and demanding a certain something that the school's not gonna uh, uh, give them. And maybe they've not uh, taken a no from anybody. So the head of school has to be the person ready to say no uh, 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 to an overweening entitled parent.
0: And I love, you know, I read your book. Um, It's fantastic. I highly recommend it to our audience. And and what I love about it is that you really do call out these power dynamics that are at play in in independent schools that that we don't like to really acknowledge all the time, but they're so important when we're thinking about how do we strengthen this partnership between families and and the school. Rob, is there anything that you would like to add in terms of hopes and fears?
1: Yes, there is actually, Anne-Marie. One of the things Michael and I try to be very clear about in the book is that the roots of these potential tensions and differences and these potentially difficult feelings, the roots are actually perfectly normal. The hopes and fear that parents have for their children and the fears about what could go wrong, the hopes that teachers have for how they can work with kids their fears about what might go wrong. These are, uh, as we talk about them, they, these are, are at, at heart fundamentally normal. That is, they, they it, it, Michael began just in the right way by saying, in fact, we're all really ambivalent about our kids. We want things to go wonderfully. We love them to death. We, we do anything for them, but we're also very apprehensive about getting things right and therefore worried if, if there seems to be something that might be going wrong. Um, and so um, there can be lots of difficult interchanges that can happen uh, between parents and schools. But at heart, at heart first of all, they're, they're sort of normal. And secondly, very often, uh, they're mirror images of each other. Parents want teachers to think well of them and are worried that they might not. Teachers want parents to think well of them and are worried that they might not. So there's lots in the dynamic, which can at times be difficult, but which is not a matter of gross pathology. For us as psychologists, it's actually more in the realm of sort of normal developmental anxieties and concerns and wishes and hopes about how children can can grow up best. I think that's
0: a... Two really important points to highlight there, and, and I appreciate you bringing those up for us. And I think it, it it just segues beautifully into my next question because you know, given what you and Michael have both talked about, hopes and fears for for parents and teachers, I know our listeners would like to hear more about that perception of of the fear of heavy hitters. So in the book, you both write about that. There's this real disparity between the power and income of parents and those of teachers. And that, and then this is a direct quote, we can say with conviction that we have never been in a school where teachers did not feel this vulnerability to a greater or lesser extent. So so given that, what do board members need to understand about why teachers harbor such fear and what can the board do to help teachers overcome this? Uh,
1: Those are powerful questions. Um, First, uh, I think what board, need to understand is teachers are different from most board members. Most board members are not educators, and many people who devote themselves to a school by serving on its board and who wish the school the very best and who extend themselves and who make additional contributions in addition to the tuition they're paying and other things um, want nothing but the best for the school. What they don't necessarily understand is that for teachers, there is an aspect about the work which is a calling more than a job. Teachers are willing to work for relatively low pay, for example, in exchange for finding a school where they can really be true to themselves and can fulfill their own wishes to connect with kids and to be influential in a meaningful way, as Michael spoke about a a couple of minutes ago. And um, board members often need to understand that teachers are in some key ways, naive about some of the things that many trustees take for granted. Things like, um, oh, I don't know, sort of money. And that most teachers are what Michael likes to call uh, guilty perfectionists at heart. You can elaborate on this maybe in a couple of minutes, Anne-Marie. I think he's exactly right about this. And that lots of teachers are We hire them to be great about kids in classrooms, not about anything else. Most teachers are people who love to spend their time day after day, all day, week after week with kids, little kids, middle school kids, adolescents. No other adults want to do this. (laughs) Only only educators thrive in this kind of way. And uh, the things that make them great at that are things that don't make them great at at stuff like adult conflict. Most teachers are born pleasers and they're born conflict avoiders. And so um, board members need to understand that situations that they themselves in their own workplace might find ordinary, let's just get this settled here, um, may not be that way for teachers. Now, there's a second thing you asked is how the board can help. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say, actually, if I were to be direct and honest about this, I don't think there's much that boards can do directly to be helpful to teachers about this, um, except in a couple of instances. One is there are times um, when uh, parents who get very upset about something and get upset about something they think a teacher has done wrong or whatever, may try to reach out directly to board members to get Mm -hmm. this problem fixed. When and if that happens, it's crucial that board members not get into it. It's crucial that board members say, you need to take this up with the teacher directly. If that hasn't worked with the division head or the next level of administrator, department chair, whatever. But this is not a governance matter. This is an educational matter that has to be handled through the channels. There are more and more situations that Michael and I encounter every year now where parents who are actually powerful and influential in some way, uh, are more likely to reach out beyond the regular channels to try to get what they see as some kind of problem fixed. And the other thing that's related to this, the last thing I'll say about it is, when the board has a really good relationship with the head of school and can trust the head of school, a trustee would be able to say I want to give you a heads up that I heard from Mr. So-and-so who was concerned about something, and I send it back to the teacher and to the division head. And the head of school is then alerted and ready if something should reach her or his desk to be able to respond in some way. But the board member has at the same time preserved the boundaries that help make a school uh, run
0: successfully. That's such a great example, Rob. Thank you so much for, for saying the two things that I feel like I say all the time when I'm working with boards is number one, this idea of no surprises yeah. um, for the board or for the head of school. And this idea of knowing as a board member when you need to redirect back to the head of school and actually practicing scenarios like the one that you just that you just explained. Um, that was That was really powerful. Michael, do you have anything that you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, I can give you an example of what boards shouldn't do from a recent case I have, which I will disguise. But uh, you have to imagine how powerfully uh, parents on the board might feel. So what if there were, for instance, a sixth grade class and there were three very powerful girls in the class who were kind of exclusive and having an intimidating effect on their uh, parents and the other parents, I mean, on other children who felt victimized. And then they came to the teacher and the teacher thought, yes, indeed, these uh, girls have a little bit too much power and then the teacher made some changes of groups to try and break the three girls up but it turns out that two of the girls are children of board members and then what the teacher's done becomes a one-hour discussion in a board meeting and the board starts to legislate on the way this sixth grade teacher classroom teacher should have handled this that's terrifying for the teacher and for the head of school, things are getting away from him uh, because his board's running away from from the the limits they should be operating under. But what's driving it is that the board members fears that their daughters might be considered bullies, their need to uh, advocate for their daughters, to be able to have the friends they want. And all of a sudden, all the rules governing boards have gone to hell because the feelings are so strong. But Rob and I have talked to many teachers after the teacher knows that his or her decision-making has become a matter for discussion at the board level. And that makes a teacher really uneasy, makes him fear for his job, makes him wonder whether his
0: head of school can protect him. Right, and that's another powerful example. And, and I've heard that I've heard similar things as well. And I think when those emotions get so hot in the boardroom, it, it's sometimes hard for for trustees and the head of school to just remember, you know, that the purpose of the work, right, is that we're, you know, we're being strategic, we're being generative, we're being future thinking and getting into the day to day operations of the school, whether it's what's happening in a classroom or what, you know, a child has said to another child is, is not the space of the work. for for board members. So Rob, I'm gonna ask you to explain for the record, um, what exactly should be a board's role in parent relations?
1: A a board's role should be to back up the school in uh, its structuring of the partnership with parents to be clear about how that, Michael and I have, have recommended in the book actually, that the typical notion of partnership between home and school needs to be revised some in a way that makes the school the senior partner in this partnership. That is the partner uh, that knows the most about child development and education and welcomes uh, cooperation with parents and collaboration with parents, but takes the lead about what's best for kids at school that calls for a greater assertion by the school of things like, welcome, here's how we do school here. These are the hallmarks that you can expect and can count on if your child attends here. This is what we will expect of students. This is what we expect of ourselves. And this is what we expect of parents so that we're all in an enterprise together, to be sure, but with adults. Uh, having some clarity up front about what we're modeling for the students. And the board needs to understand this and uh, be willing to back the school up when there are the occasional boundary breaking episodes that happen by uh, a parent. We don't think, Michael and I, that a board needs to play a primary role in structuring this. It's mainly a supportive role and, in a sense, a backup role. But what is crucial is that the board members understand what goes into the partnership, what the limits are, what the boundaries are, and is prepared, as in the examples we've both given already, is prepared actually to uphold those boundaries and to back the school up as it's necessary. You know, with luck, this doesn't happen all that often. And in general, uh, Michael and I haven't said it yet, but we should have, (laughs) Anne-Marie. Our experience is the large majority of parents are good participants in the school community and things go very well with them and they're very responsive to the school. However, the anxieties and concerns of parents have been rising in recent years and so have the episodes of behavior that have gone well beyond what would normally uh, be tolerated. So it's for those reasons that it's really good for the board to know Uh, Exactly how does this school frame the partnership with parents so that board members, uh, including especially those board members who are parents, as in Michael's recent example, that those board members are prepared to back the school up in the occasions when it's necessary.
0: So first, I have to say, I really appreciate you calling out the fact that, you know, most parents are really wonderful partners to the school community. I think that that's a really important point for us to to make here. But I also appreciate this idea of what you were saying, that over recent years, anxiety and fears have been increasing. And I imagine that, you know, well, I don't imagine, I know, that over this past year with, with the pandemic and this extended crisis, that that has really elevated the amount of anxiety and fear and stress for for parents, for teachers, for heads of school as we've navigated this year of uncertainty. And so just being reminded of those boundaries and parameters, I think, is so important right now.
1: I agree. I think it, everybody's life has gotten harder. Everybody at this point in, you know, we're, we're a year into it now, Henry. Everybody's exhausted. People are exhausted at home taking care of their kids. Teachers are exhausted at school. Administrators haven't had a day off or maybe two days off since last February, and so with the exhaustion and anxiety being higher, it's more important than ever that the board be able to be the place where the leaders of the school, particularly the head, can turn and count on for support and backup about the basic ways we run this school.
0: And and calling that out and and making that really clear, right? Being really just explicit, not implicit, but explicit about this is the way we do business here. I think it's it's, it's really a culture thing, right? It's, it's about really saying, you know, this is the culture that we're trying to support as a school community, and we are all members of the school community, and this is how we're, we're going to move forward together.
1: Ever since 2008, after the financial meltdown, more and more independent schools uh, began facing enrollment challenges, and particularly independent schools that did not have, do not have a high school and large numbers of them across the country have seen some decline in enrollment prior to a recent bubble here in the covid uh, in the covid year and one of the responses they've had since then has been to try to promise more and to apply to parents or suggest yes we can we we will we will meet every need and it comes both from a good heart and also from an apprehensiveness about enrollment and finance and so on but it has left many schools in a position of being less willing and able to, to say to, to parents, for example, oh, that's actually not good for, for teenagers. They, they really need this, but not that. And so in many cases, the school has become in a way complicit in encouraging inadvertently some behaviors that they really don't think are good and don't want. And so it's especially important in our view for um, the boards and their heads and administrators to be able to have candid conversation about how we manage these kinds of difficult things when they arise. Fortunately, we're glad there aren't, you know, that many of them, but there are more than there used to be. So we need to be make sure that we are on a page together about how this school handles these things.
0: I appreciate you jumping in with that, Michael. I think that's a really important point. And I'm actually going to follow up with that. with was something that Rob had said earlier about this idea of, of parents who are also board members. So, Michael, we know that that's a, a natural conflict of interest, right, when, when you have a board member or a board chair who's also a parent. And, you know, sometimes they might want to use their influence to benefit their child in some way, whether it's, you know, getting their child assigned to a particular teacher or advocating for I don't know a new gym or a new swimming pool or maybe they just have trouble focusing on that long term and just really want to talk about that short-term period like you brought up earlier about you know who's talking to who in the classroom um so what principles should trustee parents use to guide them in such cases and what should the board as a whole do if despite good intentions individual trustee parents have trouble following
2: those principles two very good questions uh The first principle for board members has to be humility and a willingness to learn. Many people on boards are very talented and very successful. Very few of them are educators. So you have to have some humility about it. But if you decide that you can be a a fully informed board member by listening only to your 10th grade son and his complaints about the high school, You have, shall we say, confined your learning to one very narrow, highly biased source. So when you become a board member and you're also a parent, the number one thing you have to do either mentally, but I would recommend actually, let's say you have that that 10th grade son. You you have to visit uh, the classes of some of the seniors and watch the teachers at work. And you have to, if it's a K through 12, you have to visit the classrooms of some of the fifth grade teachers and watch and learn and, frankly, be impressed. And, you know, Rob and I both started as teachers and we, we have some lifelong feeling of for how difficult it is to teach and, and, and how hard it is to, to be a, a superb teacher. And uh, superb teachers are always impressive. But if a board member never gets into a classroom and sees it and relies on his or her child for information, the the board member will be misinformed or or, or ill-informed and and, and too much in matters of the heart. It's why heads of schools should have days when board members visit the school, not just a cocktail party with teachers. I'm talking about visiting the school and seeing it in, in action. And it's for the board members own education, but the result will be, I think, respect and humility for the educators uh, in the building. Um, The impulse to paddle your own child's canoe is almost irresistible for every parent at some point in their life. They think, well, you know, I'm donating my time and I I know the situation. I could just make it a little bit better for my child if I advocate for this teacher to be fired or for this schedule change? No, 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 no. So what is needed then is a board chair who can set some limits on people in the board. Why don't I say the head do it? Well, because the the board are the employers of the head. And one always hopes, and Rob and I see in schools, that for the most part, the boards trust the head and therefore defer to the judgment. Whatever her judgment is in a certain situation, they defer to that. But out of control board members who who are starting to lobby or advocate for their child, it's very difficult for a head uh, to put them uh, in their place. And that's when a private conversation between the head and the board chair should occur. And when the board chair should say, yes, I'll take care of it. Mm. And the board chair who then goes to the board member and says, you know, the board is not a place uh, for lobbying for your child or trying to get involved in the hiring and firing of teachers. We either trust our head of school to hire and fire teachers or we don't. But our one action is we either get rid of the head of the school or we support her. But that's it. We, We don't micromanage. And 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 we don't try and enter into the process because Rob and I have been to many schools where boards start getting involved in hiring and firing, and then you have a terrified faculty.
0: I can imagine. Rob, did you have anything that you wanted to to add to Michael's description of of what to do or how to best manage when you're both a a parent and a trustee?
1: Well, you know, it's it's easy for us for Michael and me to to recommend. I first of all, I. I'm with Michael 100% about this, what, what he recommends. What, what I w- wanted to add about it is that actually, there is a deep tradition throughout independent schools of uh, conflict avoidance. It's most visible in classroom teachers when they have to deal with adults, but you see it in the administrators themselves, even though, as Michael pointed out earlier, they have more experience that helps them to get over some of it. But I have, in in a lot of the board work I've done, including several recent instances, have come across too many times, Anne Marie, when the board chair didn't do what Michael just said, and where the board chair has not been willing to have the private conversation with a trustee that says essentially you need to cut this out. You need to keep your board member hat on, not your parent hat on when you're, you know, uh, sitting in the boardroom with us. And uh, very often, uh, especially when the board is mostly parents, which is true in most day schools, people know each other. They may have kids in the same class. They may golf together. They may whatever. And it's not easy to say to somebody, uh, you know, I I need to call you on that behavior. So my experience, Anne-Marie, is that there's more avoidance than there uh, ideally should be because what Michael just recommended is exactly what would happen. I know you know this, and I think anybody at NAIS who specializes in trustee and governance uh, matters would agree as well. My experience just is that, that it doesn't happen often enough, and so I'm glad to to add my voice to Michael's to say this that is what ought to happen.
0: I agree with you completely, and and I think one way to sort of even have to circumvent that conversation is when you're onboarding new trustees and if they are parents being really explicit again about, you know, these kinds of instances may come up and when they do, this is going to be how we respond as a board because within these four walls or in Zoom land right now, you know, our, our focus is not on our individual children. Our focus is on the school and making sure that it's sustainable for the future. And I think, again, it goes back to, to board culture and, and really cultivating a culture where, where that is the norm, that we are thinking strategically, generatively. We are not in the weeds. We are not operational.
1: So one of the challenges about that, in my experience, has been that the average tenure, at least in the boards that I've gotten to work with Anne-Marie, seems to be declining. I think it's not as easy as it used to be to get board members and not as easy to keep them. And it used to be, for example, years ago, I would meet a head of school and if she or he had had been newly hired, it would take uh, five to six years before there was a majority on the board of trustees who had not been there when she or he got hired that's always a significant turning point in the tenure of a head. Now, it's it's very common for heads to be in year three, and there's no longer a majority. Part of what that means is that there's often less institutional memory, and the board culture that you just referred to, which is so crucial, is also affected by the fact that there's, there's less of an established tradition in, in boards that have more turnover. And so it has. it's one of the things that has made some of this harder and been a, a greater concern to Michael and me and to, uh, to people who, you know, are concerned about independent school governance.
0: That's a, such an excellent point and very well taken. I feel like we're trying to advocate more for this idea of a longer onboarding process versus just like that one day orientation for, for just the reasons that you're saying that, you know, culture is something that, that needs to be built over time. And I think that, you know, as you're saying, if trustees are rolling on and off, that makes it harder. But if an onboarding process has really explicit guidelines about behaviors and expectations and and your favorite word limits and boundaries, I think that's really helpful. Michael, did you wanna jump in before we? I wanted to
2: return to the initial theme and, 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 and pour a little water on this parade. You can have the greatest orientation, the longest orientation, the most onboarding, the best education, with uh, periodic renewals and board retreats and stuff like that and a superb board culture. But you can never underestimate the possible behavior of a parent who is in the grip of their dream, their division one athletic dream for their son, their fear for their child about college and maybe the college counselor isn't good enough. When parents are in the grip of their hopes and fears for their child, they are often very hard <laughs> to settle. And it's going to require actually uh, a strong board chair, because their people will bust through at those moments, e- even the best board training, just because they love their kids so
0: much. That's an excellent point. And- Again, very well taken. So I just have to thank both of you for your time today. This has been incredible. I know that the insights that you shared and your perspective is gonna be incredibly helpful to our members. So so thank you again. I, I really appreciate your time. We're glad to be with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Trustee Table. We've included some great resources on some of the areas we discussed at NAIS.org and you can also keep an eye on that page for new podcast episodes. Please be sure to listen, rate, review, and subscribe to a new episode each month. Thank you for listening.